Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would truly teach us to early seek your will. And Lord, that we would walk in your love as you love us still. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning. You may be seated. Good to see everyone here this morning. So glad to have you here. And um, I want to extend a special thank you to Ethan. Um, David's away for a few Sundays here. And Ethan is, as part of his summer internship, is stepping in and leading us on Sunday mornings as well. So Ethan, thank you very much. As I said in the first service, um, Ethan's going away to college in about a month or so here, but we're trying to figure out how to keep him here longer because we all love having him in the office as our summer intern. So um, anyway, come back and stay. (laughs) I do want to invite you to um, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We're on your devices with scripture on them. And today we're, we're really beginning to dive into our study of Ephesians this morning that we did some introductory work on last Sunday. And our focus today will be on verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. However, before we dive in, beginning at verse 3, I want to briefly mention verse 1, where St. Paul, in the opening, clearly establishes the authority by which he writes to this local church, this Ephesian church. He writes to them as an apostle with unique God-given authority, and he is, as we see in verse 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. This is language which is exactly mirrored word for word in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 1, Colossians 1 verse 1, and 2 Timothy 1 verse 1. And Paul opens with this because it establishes his God-given authority to speak definitively to these churches according to the Holy Spirit. Because Paul's authority to write and to instruct the Ephesian church is, is rooted in the will of God. This apostolic ministry is a subject which Paul revisits and reflects on, reflects on further along in Ephesians. We will look at it in greater detail as it arises in our text in the weeks to come as we work through step by step the book of Ephesians, hearing what God would speak to us as a church from this book. Now in verses 3 through 14, St. Paul begins in a manner that is not his norm. Typically, his letter begins with a a thanksgiving. However, in Ephesians, that is delayed until verse 15, which was read this morning, but which we will pick up with next Sunday. So instead of beginning with a customary thanksgiving, Paul instead begins this letter with what is known as a barakah, which is a Hebrew or Jewish blessing found here in Christianized form. And it's important for us to understand this because this blessing is not simply or even primarily directed to the Ephesians, rather it's a blessing first and foremost directed toward and a blessing of God himself. Verse 3 begins, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessing God. And Paul is blessing God for what God has done both on behalf of himself and on behalf of the Ephesians. Now, now remember the Ephesian context that we talked about last week, that this is 
a church located in a city that is a cosmopolitan city, filled with various kinds of pagan worship and ideas from throughout the known world at that time. And these were primarily Gentile believers, converts from these pagan religions, who were now, according to the will of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in them, discerning and coming to understand how they need to untether from their pagan past and live holy as new creations in Jesus Christ. And they're a church that is discouraged as well, primarily because of Paul's lengthy time in chains since he last visited them seven years prior. So Paul writes this blessing of God in this letter to them to bless God, but to encourage and build them up. And the beauty and the glory of this Jewish blessing, which Paul pronounces here at the outset of this letter is something which our English language doesn't do full justice to. As New Testament scholar Gordon Fee says, writing about this passage, the Barakah is another of those remarkable moments in the Pauline corpus where one fears to say too much, lest its grandeur be replaced by our own pedestrian prose. It is also interesting that in verses 3 through 14 in the Greek, they are written by Paul as one single sentence. All of these verses, with artful use of punctuation, 202 words is one single sentence. Lucia, the journalist in you, is coming out. I can see you shaking your head. Funny story related to that. Um, something I've worked on in my writing when I was in seminary was I had a penchant for, for long and complex sentences versus shorter, more succinct sentences that broke a thought into multiple sentences. And one of my professors who is a dear friend, he introduced me to my wife. So he's very special to Tammy and me. And we have stayed in touch since seminary, which has been a lot of years ago now. Um, he actually has a son who was recently stationed at Quantico, and he and I got together for coffee while his son was there. But I had written, he was my New Testament professor, and he, I had written, um, I had taken a class on Mark's gospel with him and written an ex, what is known as an exegesis paper. And one of the sentences, um, Dr. Hernando in the sidebar wrote these words, Scott, Though your sentence is grammatically correct, I believe that you may have been German in a past life. (laughs) But Paul writes a sentence here of 202 words. And this entire passage, all 202 words, is a blessing of God himself. But in it, Paul also clearly exhorts the Ephesians by reminding them of the blessings that they have received from God. Continuing in verse 3, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Why am I spending so much on this time on this single point as we begin this series? Well, I do that because this blessing this way of thinking and being really frames the entire book of Ephesians for us. Paul blesses God the Father for the wonderful work of salvation he has accomplished through Jesus Christ and appropriated in their lives by the Holy Spirit. And he's writing to them knowing that this should fill their hearts with overflowing thanksgiving and praise to God. 
And if this salvation is a lived reality in our lives, in your life and in my life, our hearts should also be filled with overflowing, abundant and joyful thanksgiving and praise to God for what he has done on our behalf. And apart from this reality, apart from living into this reality, much of what is written in Ephesians is without application for our lives. These verses that we're looking at today also set the trajectory for the remainder of not only my sermon focus today, but these verses, this verse that we're looking at here, verse 3, also emphasizes the Trinitarian nature, if you will, and the Trinitarian framework of our salvation, that is through our great God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we have this life in God. And that's really my point as we move through this text this morning, this Trinitarian focus, because we are adopted by God the Father, verses 3 through 6. Do we understand that God has adopted us as his children, as his sons and daughters? That's what verse 5 tells us. And it's a theme that is repeated in multiple places in St. Paul's letters. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And then in Galatians, the fourth chapter, beginning with verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. When a person is adopted... And Tim and I know this from going through the process, as some of you do as well. That child gets a brand new birth certificate with the names of the adoptive parents on it. That's what God does for us. Even though we were dead in our trespasses and sin, even though we were in rebellion against him, when we come to him and when we come into a living relationship with him, he adopts us as, us as his children and he puts his name if you will, on our spiritual birth certificates. And it's important here as well to understand the emphasis on the word sons. And that's not, when we speak of adoption in the New Testament, not some sexist thing. But understand, in that day, the son inherited everything that was the father's. So everything that belonged to the father went to the son. So when God adopts you and me as his children... We inherit everything just as a son did in a temporal sense. In that day, we inherit all of God's blessing of him as our father and all the prerogatives that come as his divinely born children, as his sons we inherit. You also hear a lot in our culture at times today about, and talk about we are all God's children. Let me be clear what scripture says on that. All of us, from the moment that we are conceived in our mother's womb, are created in God's image. We are bearers of the divine image of God. 
But that doesn't make us his children. We become children when we are adopted through redemption, which is only possible in and through Jesus Christ. That is what makes us children of God. We are all creations. We are all created in God's image. We are all dearly beloved by God, but we are only children through a living relationship with Jesus Christ. That may not be popular, but that is what God's word says. And he has chosen us, those who are part of his church, both in heaven and on earth, to be adopted. And this, as verse 6 tells us, is for the praise and the glory of his name. Second, we are redeemed by God the Son, Jesus Christ. Have you ever given serious thought to what the word or the term redeemed means? The idea of redeeming in its most basic sense is to gain or to regain possession of something or to purchase something back. And this is precisely what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. All that was lost in the fall, all that was lost because of our sinful natures and our rebellion against God God has purchased back for us through the blood of his son. He has redeemed it back to us. You'll often hear me use the phrase in prayer or sometimes in talking as well in sermons, thanking God that you've done for us what we can never do for ourselves, what nobody else could do for us. And I say that or pray that frequently because it touches on the reality that it is only through the sinless son of God. God, the son eternal who came to earth with the purpose of redeeming men and women. God, the son who came to earth to die the sinner's death that we deserved. God, the son who is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And that we are redeemed, we are regained as God's treasured possessions in fullness of right and true and living relationship only in and through him, through Jesus Christ. Through his shed blood and his sacrificial death on the cross. Our forgiveness comes through the blood of Christ. That's not a popular thing to say in this day and age. Sometimes you have this idea of sacrifice. And yet scripture tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. And it was only through the blood of Jesus Christ that we could experience true and full redemption. The writer of Hebrews touches on this in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning of verse 12. Speaking of Jesus, he entered once for all into the holy places not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer are sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And then in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The imagery of blood and sacrifice may be an affront to many today in our culture, but brothers and sisters, may we never shrink back from this truth, this reality of the gospel that cannot be circumvented, that cannot be sidestepped, that it is through the blood of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the sinless Son of God, that we are redeemed, that we are purchased back to right relationship with God. And we never shrink back from these truths that are an unshakable core of our faith. Even as we pray every Sunday, as either Father Jed or I pray in the Eucharistic prayer, repeating Jesus' very own words, drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins whenever you drink it do this in remembrance of me it is through Christ's blood that we have the forgiveness of our trespasses and sins what an incredible truth to ponder that through Christ this amazing redemption is ours And that this redemption is God's purpose for you and me in Christ. But what's all this mean in terms of a lived reality? It's it really it's it's much more than simply getting off the hook with God or getting out from being under God's judgment. Because with such a great and glorious salvation, also, brothers and sisters, comes responsibility. We are now God's children, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. With being joined in Christ, hear me, with being joined in Christ, joined with God through Christ, comes responsibility and comes a God-given, God-empowered call to action. Being remade and continuing to be remade new creations in Christ leads to God-breathed action in our lives. Leads to being joined with God's mission, the very reason he sent Christ, to redeem the world. To be in Christ, to be God's child, is to be joined ever more full and more full and ever more fully aligned with God's work and purpose in the world. To where we set temporal pursuits and desires aside. So that we at times in setting those things aside can be more fully aligned in our lives as individuals, as families, as a church family can be more aligned fully with the heart and the mission and the work of God. What God is doing in the world in our day. Michael Gorman, who is a very renowned New Testament scholar expert on Paul's letters, who actually teaches at St. Mary's Seminary in Baltimore, writes this. To be in Christ is therefore to be part of God's mission as both beneficiary of it 
and participants in it. Let me reread that. To be in Christ is therefore to be part of God's mission as both beneficiary of it and participants in it. In fact, benefiting and participating are inseparable, even synonymous realities. We hear a lot in Christian circles today about the benefits of salvation or sometimes what I would call supposed benefits of salvation, especially as they're tied to temporal and earthly and material prosperity, which may not have anything at all to do with the true gospel. But sometimes we don't hear nearly as much. Sometimes we hear essentially nothing about participating, about the responsibility that comes with such a great redemption. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 reminds us that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us, entrusting to you and to me the message of reconciliation. So I would pose this question to each of us and to all of us together. How are we doing in our excuse me, how are we doing in our participation in the mission of God in the world? How are we doing in aligning our lives with God's heart in such a way that we're joining in with what God is doing in our day and in our midst? What things is God speaking to us perhaps to set aside? Things that on which our focus is fixed, perhaps that need to diminish in focus so that we can more fully embrace and live into the heart and the call and the will of God and join in with God's wonderful and glorious work. How are we doing with proclaiming this message of reconciliation that he's entrusted to us? God does and will continue indeed, as verse 9 says, to make the mystery of his will known. For those who are in Christ, there is no mystery to God's will. It's plain and clear here in God's word. It's plain and clear by the voice of the Holy Spirit. It's abundantly evident that we are to be about our fathers, our father who has adopted us. We are to be about his business. The question is for us, is will we step out in faithful Sacrificial obedience. We are redeemed by God the Son, Jesus Christ. And then finally, we are sealed by God the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 13 through 14 with me. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise and glory of his name. This is Paul's conclusion to this very long 202-word sentence of blessing. We are adopted by the Father through redemption by Christ's blood, and the Holy Spirit of God himself is the one who secures us as inheritors of this great salvation. Verse 13, we see we are sealed in him, in Christ, by the promised Holy Spirit. 
in the New Testament, we need to understand that, that a seal was a mark of ownership or authenticity. If someone, an official, was sending an important letter in the day when letters were passed along by couriers, that letter would be rolled up and it would be sealed with a wax seal. And the, the writer of that letter, the person with authority to write that letter, would stamp his ring into that wax. And as long as that seal and that wax was intact, they knew the authenticity of that letter. Pilate sealed Jesus' tomb with his own seal. Matthew 27, 65 through 66, Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. And so often in our culture, and me first on this, I, when I think of sealing the tomb, I think of, you know, kind of caulking it closed like you'd caulk replacement windows in. But that's not really what this is talking about because Pilate had that tomb sealed with his seal certifying that Jesus was dead and buried and in that tomb. Diplomas, when we receive our high school diploma, we receive our degree in college, they are sealed as a mark of authenticity. When I was ordained a priest, when Father Jeb was ordained a priest, when Deacon Julie was ordained a deacon, the bishop's seal goes on that ordination certificate to certify the validity of what has taken place. In a much greater measure, being sealed with the mark of the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, is a mark of authentic ownership that we are marked by, and hear this, and owned by God himself. And we, as God's children, with him as our father, with him as our owner, are then called by the power of the same spirit to represent God, his character, and his good and gracious work that he is doing in us and that he wills to do in the lives of others. We are called then to represent that accurately because we bear the seal of God the Holy Spirit himself. So my question as we conclude is this. How is the mark of our seal showing? Is that seal of the Holy Spirit showing in such a way that those who encounter us day to day in the community, in the workplace, in stores, in Northern Virginia traffic, see the mark of God? Or do they see something else? Do they see a life that has been and continues to be transformed by the living God through redemption made possible through Jesus Christ? What do they see when they look at this church? Do they see the glorious and wonderful seal of the Holy Spirit validating our authenticity as the people of God? And if that seal is obscured, excuse me, obscured or somehow marred, what is God calling us to? What is God calling you to, to lay aside? What is he calling us to, to repent of and turn away from 
so that that seal shines through and shows through in all of its glory and grandeur. What are those hidden recesses of my life and your life? The life of this church that God wants to shine his light on so that that seal shines ever more brightly. Like St. Paul, we need to begin by blessing God for who he is, what he has done for us and what he wills to do for a lost and dying world around us. Our hearts and lives need to be filled with thanksgiving, knowing that we are redeemed by God the Son and that redemption is for a purpose. Yes, we are beneficiaries, but we have a responsibility that comes with such a great salvation. And how are we bearers of God's seal? That his life flows out through us to a world who desperately needs to hear and see the reality of the gospel lived out. This is what God calls us to. This is what God is calling us to in this season. May we not shrink back from the fullness of such a great salvation through our God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, search our hearts. Apply the truth of your word, even as you have given it here in Ephesians. And fill our lives, O oh God, with thanksgiving and blessing of you for who you are and for what you have done. Lord, search the recesses of our hearts. Search the recesses of our church community, God, and shine your light on those things that are there that somehow hide your seal shining in all its glory, that somehow interfere, O oh Lord, with us living into the mission of God and joining in with what you are doing in our day. Lord, may we lay those things aside so that with all that we are, by your grace and by your power, we would join in with your good and gracious work of redeeming people and setting them free and transforming them and even us in greater measure for your praise and glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.